Well, we come now to our introduction to systematic theology lessons, where we've been looking at the major doctrines of our faith. I don't know if you've been keeping count, but we're on, I think, lesson 78 in this series, so we've covered a lot of ground. We've considered the doctrines of Scripture, of God, of God's eternal decree, of creation, of providence, of sin, of, of the covenant, of Christ, of salvation, and then recently, of the law of God. Well, to get a sense of where we're now going to go from here, we look at our catechisms. And when we do that, we find we will find that question 85 in the shorter catechism and its parallel, question 153 in the larger, provide for us an outline of what the rest of the catechisms are going to deal with after having now dealt with the law of God. After having studied the Ten Commandments and learning what God requires of us to do and forbids of us to do, the catechism then asks the question of whether or not it is even possible for man to obey God's law perfectly. And we see that it is impossible for us. We learn that no man since the time of Adam, born of ordinary generation, is able in this life to perfectly keep the commandments of God and that we break God's law daily and with the whole of our being, our thoughts, our words, and actions. And if that news wasn't bad enough, after the catechisms consider whether or not all sins are equally heinous in the sight of God, we learn that while not all sins are equally heinous, all sins, no matter how small they may be in our eyes, deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and in the life to come. And we spent some time on why that is. Because our sin offends against God's righteous law. Our sin offends against God's sovereignty, against God's goodness, and against God's holiness. And this is the state all of us are in, fallen in Adam. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And John says in 1 John 1, 1.8 that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then we see in Revelation 20 the vision that John has of the end where we read that after history comes to a close, the thousand years are ended, Christ returns and the devil is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. And then we read this, and then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Folks, this is absolutely devastating news. It's the worst possible news we can have. And yet for millions of people on this planet, it's some of the least important news. In fact, millions of people don't even believe that it's true. Worse, there are even millions who call themselves Christians who just go on with their lives, living however they please, behaving as if none of this is true. 
Or perhaps in the back of their mind, they think upon it occasionally, but it's just not a priority in their lives and in their thoughts. And it's mind-boggling when you think about it. I was just thinking about it this morning. There's not a day that goes by where you don't hear something about COVID. It's just nonstop, 24-7. And obviously it's something that's very serious and it shook the entire world. Everyone has been affected in it in one sense or another. But what about this greater threat in our lives? What about this reality that because you have inherited guilt from Adam and because of your own personal rebellion against God, you are under his wrath and curse and you will suffer in this life and also in the life to come for eternity. And listen, I don't want to make light of those who have suffered or even died from COVID. But friends, this virus is child's play in contrast to the wrath and curse of God due to us by reason of our rebellion. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In fact, we just sung there in Luther's hymn that goods and kindred go. Beloved, COVID is difficult, but it's nothing compared to the fires of Gehenna where there will be a final and never-ending punishment for those who have rebelled against God. So I ask you today, what in the world do you have going on in your life that's so important than this? Nothing. And if all this is true, which which it is, if you really think about it, it's literally insane to consider how little attention that we give to this. And how much attention and time and effort we put into other things like what I'm going to wear today or what I'm going to eat or where I'm going to go plan and spend my holidays. The list goes on. And again, hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying to you that you don't have to think about clothing and food and how you spend your days. But I have yet to meet a person who fails to do those things. On the other hand, I've met hundreds of people who think little to nothing about these spiritual realities. It's sad to think of the millions of people who will stand before Christ at the end of days who have spent 30, 40, 50, maybe even 70 or 80 years on this planet consumed and thoughtful about everything but the most important thing. And it's this question here. What is required of you to escape the wrath and curse of God due to you by reason of your transgression of his law? If I were to pull you aside after church today and ask you this question, what would be your answer? Would you even have an answer? Would you might stumble around trying to figure it out? I think the question and answer found here in the larger Catechism 153 is one of the most important things that we could ever contemplate and think about. Your very life is at risk eternally if you're wrong about this question. So let's consider the answer that the Westminster Divines give to us. The answer that we may escape the wrath and curse of God due to us by reason of the transgression of the law. He requireth of us repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ and the diligent use of the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his mediation. So here we learn of God's required way. 
we learn of his terms of peace. Here we learn of one of the most important truths we could ever think about and contemplate. So important, in fact, is this question that, as I've said, the remaining questions of the catechism are all going to be an expansion of this answer. And just a little side note here, you like comparing the larger with the shorter. The larger actually differs a little from the shorter here. Both catechisms speak of these three duties that are required of us, faith, repentance, and the use of God's ordinary means of grace. The shorter catechism then dedicates the question to faith and then one to repentance before going on to the outward means of grace. The larger catechism doesn't dedicate two questions to faith and repentance because they already touched on those earlier in the catechism, in questions 72 and 76. And so since we have already addressed faith and repentance in this series that we're dealing with, uh, back when we looked at the doctrine of salvation, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time doing that again. Rather, I'm going to follow the route of the larger catechism. And so the very next question is, in the larger catechism, catechism, what are these outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his mediation? And this is the answer they give to us. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to his church the benefits of his mediation are all his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for their salvation. Again, the catechism is then going to spend the rest of its time, material, getting into the details of how that is and what it looks like. What does it look like to make use of the word, to make use of the sacraments, and to make use of prayer? And so that's where we're going next in this study. And we're going to do so under the, the label of the doctrine of church. And since we're going to get into all those details, I don't want to dive deep into those details today. However, having given the answer that we did on how to escape the wrath and curse of God, I do want to explore this one issue in closing. Many people, when they hear this answer, become very confused. Some people have even argued that this answer betrays a salvation by faith alone and suggests that we earn our salvation by our actions, by our works. In fact, some people would even argue that the question itself is just a bad question. What do you mean, what does God require of me? What do you mean, God doesn't require anything of me. Doesn't our salvation rest solely on Christ? Doesn't it come from him? What do you mean that I have to submit to the teaching and preaching of the word of God? What do you mean that I have to attend church? What do you mean that I have to make use of baptism and of the Lord's Supper? that I have to pray? What do you mean that if I run from church discipline and ignore it, that my salvation is now in question? In fact, some of you here have even recently heard at a wedding that the covenant of grace is unconditional, which is, is essentially to say that there are no requirements on your part. And the question of conditions of the covenant were confused with God's unconditional election. We are led to believe that by having conditions, this all sounds like we're taking focus off of Christ and his work and putting emphasis on ourselves and suggesting that we have to do certain things in order to be saved. 
Well, friends, given the reality or the gravity of this issue, it's very important that we get this straight and right. And sadly, a lot of people don't, largely in part because they failed to give serious thought and contemplation to this. So I'll just say two things in response to that. One, I don't know how anyone could read the Bible and miss the clear and explicit fact that God requires certain things of us. Regarding faith, for example, Hebrews 11 states, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. In regards to repentance, Jesus said in Luke 13, 3, that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. When Peter was preaching in Acts, he didn't recommend repentance. He commanded it. He demanded it. In Acts 2, 36, we read, let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then regarding the means of grace, Ezekiel 36, 27 states, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Beloved, there is absolutely no question that there are things that God requires of us. These are not suggestions. These are required duties. God commands all sinners to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent of their sins, and to use the outward means of grace. This is the duty of every man to do these things and to not believe, to not repent, to not use the means of grace is to live in defiant disobedience to the Lord, making one deserving of eternal condemnation. There is no salvation apart from these things, apart from faith, repentance, and the use of God's ordinary means of grace. It's not like God takes one group over here, gives them salvation, and that salvation necessarily includes faith, repentance, and means of grace, but then has another group over here where he does things differently and doesn't include those things. Beloved, the covenant is not unconditional. Salvation is not just some abstract idea floating out in the ether somewhere that doesn't have any real meaning or any real application or effect on your life. And then secondly, I'll say this, and this is where a very important distinction needs to be made. We are not saying that by our actions of faith, repentance, and use of the Bible, of church, of sacraments, and prayer, that these are the means by which we purchase our salvation or procure it. You'll remember, we've already talked about what procures our salvation. We spent a whole time talking about Christ and his work and his atonement. It is the person and work of Christ and Christ alone. In the words of Paul in Romans 5, it is through, quote, his one act of righteousness that leads to justification and life for all men. 
It was by Christ's obedience that the many will be made righteous. Christ lived a perfect and righteous life. Christ suffered and died for our sins. Christ purchased us by his blood. Christ was raised from the dead to procure and secure salvation on behalf of the elect. That was already settled in the catechism. We've already dealt with that, those questions. This question isn't about that. What this question is pointing us to is the reality that the salvation that Christ has purchased for his elect, again, is not just some abstract idea, but it's something that is actually applied and received and experienced by the individual. These are the instrumental means by which salvation is applied to us. And not only that, evidences our salvation. Don't tell me you're a Christian and you have no faith. Don't tell me you're a Christian and you show no repentance in your life. And don't tell me you're a Christian and you show little to no concern whatsoever in making diligent use of his word of the sacraments of baptism and Lord's Supper and of prayer. And I'll just add to that, and since God has ordained the administration of the sacraments and the word to take place in the context of church and officers, don't tell me that God is doing a work in you while you neglect the church and all that is associated with it, including this issue of church discipline that our pastor has been preaching on. All of these things are the product of God's salvific work in a believer. This is what salvation looks like when it's applied and experienced by you. And if those things are not there, either God has different plans for different people, and show me where that's at in the Bible, or you have deceived yourself. And so we're going to go on from here to consider the doctrine of the church, the outward and ordinary means of grace that God has ordained. We're going to look at how to make use of the word of God, how to approach it. We're going to look at how God is uh, ordained, not just personal use, but the calling of officers and, and the preaching and teaching of the word in the local church. We're going to look at the sacraments and then prayer, all as instituted by God. But as we do this, examine yourself and consider the priority or lack of these things in your life. It truly is a barometer of where you stand in relation to God. Well, my timer's clicking at me, which is great because I'm on my last slide, so that's perfect. But again, we will get into the details of how to make use of these things. But the question I want to lay before you today as we go forward is, again, what priority do these things have in your life? It says a lot about who you are and where you stand in relation to God.